Hello, everyone, and welcome to HR Works, the podcast for HR professionals. We really appreciate you taking the time out of your busy day to join us. I am the host of HR Works, Jim Davis, and the editor of the HR Daily Advisor. This podcast aims to put valuable tools and knowledge into the hands and ears of you, the HR professional. Those tools will arm you with the best methods and strategies for attracting, motivating, and retaining top talent. Today's topic is a serious one mental health in the workplace. By some estimates, one in five people in the United States live with a mental illness. Experts believe that only half of them are diagnosed. So it's an issue that's often invisible. Between stigmas, poor or missing diagnoses, people with mental illness in the workplace often have no support system and no roadmap to managing their illness. Our guest today knows all too well how hidden and complex this issue is for it is one that he is very close to. We are very lucky to have Eric Cusin, the founder of We Are All A Little Crazy, a 501c3, dedicated to making sure that everyone in the workplace is accepted, heard when they want to be, and safe. As we get into the episode, I'll let Eric tell us a little bit more about his path to where he is now, because it's one that is remarkable, but will likely also be familiar to a lot of our listeners out there that personally live with or have friends, family, and coworkers that live with mental illness. Thank you so much, Eric, for taking the time to join us today. Sure, thanks for having me, Jim. Absolutely. Can you just bring us up to speed about what happened to you and how you got to where you are? Yeah, <laughs> how much time we got, right? Yeah, right. Um, I'll, I'll try to give the Cliff Notes version of it so I don't <laughs> take up too much time, but uh, spent 15 years working in professional sports on the league and team side of things. Uh, six months into my tenure with the Florida Panthers, I was their chief revenue officer. I essentially hit a wall and I fell apart as a human being. I couldn't put sentences together, was forgetting people's names in my own family, uh, couldn't answer emails that felt like there was no connection between my brain and my mouth. That's that's how, how bad it got. And I uh, was fortunate enough to have very supportive owners who uh, let me take as much time as I need. They They... The exact terminology when they were talking was whether it's one month, two months, three months, we never leave, never leave a soldier out in the battlefield. And so they military background, both uh, West Point grads. And so I felt supported uh, by my workplace that you know, I'd be able to get over this fairly quickly and be able to get back into work mode. And my life had been my work for so long. Um, and Unfortunately, I learned that that wasn't the case. Uh, I learned about how complicated mental health is. I didn't know for mental health beforehand, but essentially for the next two and a half years, as I came back to New York to try and see the top practitioners, I'm using air quotes there, um, in the Northeast, uh, I was pumped with over 50 different psychotropic drug combinations. Uh, My days were spent staring at a ceiling, not watching TV, not listening to the radio, uh, basically dead to the world. And uh, these doctors couldn't figure out what was going on. It was just pill after pill after pill and mixture after mixture after mixture. That led to TMS therapy, which is transcranial magnetic stimulation, where they shoot electromagnetic waves into your brain, which led to suicidal ideations. First time I'd ever had that, which led me to decide to check myself in uh, through the help of family to a psych ward, which is a scary term to say. Uh, So I went to Cornell Med Psych Ward. And I was told in no uncertain terms by their expert psychiatrist there that um, I was uh, at my last resort and the last thing I had left to try 
was shock therapy. So I went through five weeks and 12 sessions of shock therapy and left the hospital no better than I was before. And uh, I thought my life was over, essentially. I figured there's no way that I'm going to be able to get out of this miserable period because I've tried everything that there is, according to what these doctors have told me. And, you know, serendipitous as it would be, my mother met this woman who practices what's called integrative psychology. She's a yoga practitioner and also a psychologist, and she believes in the mind-body connection. And it was then that I learned, you know, by talking to her that these life experiences that I had had prior to all of this kind of breakdown happening were what had ultimately affected me. So I had an older brother who had broken his femur bone and was in a body cast, then had cancer for five years and went into remission, then flew out of a Jeep, landed on his head, cracked his head open, lost partial vision in his eye, was in ICU for a month, diagnosed with a relapse of cancer, and then stronger chemo regimen, sent his body into septic shock. The septic shock then sent him into a coma for three months where we didn't know if he had any brain activity. Finally wakes from the coma and they have to put a shunt in his brain to drain the fluid out. And then his kidneys fail from the rigor of the septic shock. And my father has to donate a kidney to him. All followed by the next year, three of my close friends pass away uh, from heart conditions unexpectedly. And so essentially the way that this woman described it to me was I was walking wounded where for me, I, I thought of those experiences in life as uh, it's like anyone else. Yeah, I had more shit happen to me, excuse my language, but you know, how different is that than anyone else going through difficult challenges in life? And she kind of sat me down and she explained to me that I was having this front row seat for all these traumatic events that I was watching. And those traumatic events were having an effect on my mental health. And that's really where I first got to get an understanding of this global understanding and this picture of how mental health affects everyone. And, you know, a lot more to my story, but I don't want to go too much into detail to, to take up too much time. And the one thing I'll say, Jim, which is fascinating is at almost every time I do one of these podcasts, the folks who start off, they start off with the stats that are out there because it's, they're the ones that are the most common. One in five people have mental illness. Many of the people who in that one in five don't get treated. My theory is completely different because of what I experienced. My theory is it's not a one in five issue. It's a five in five issue. It's not necessarily that five and five have disorder. I'm not going to that level. They don't all get to the level that I got to. But who in this world doesn't deal with the premature passing away of loved ones, the sickness of loved ones, the breakups, the divorces, the job losses, uh, the difficult bosses that they're dealing with, the bullying in school, the cyberbullying, the list goes on and on. I could list for you 50 different things that people write into me about, about the challenges that they face in life. But all of those things affect our mental health. So when we're talking about mental health in the workplace, we have to think much broader than just the one in five of mental illness. This is everyone in our workforce who's dealing with some form of mental health challenge at some point that they're working for you. It's a, it's very, you know, I, listeners should know, I, I heard you speak once before at this uh, CNBC event, mm -hmm. and it was very hard to hear that your story, you know, and then listening to it again, it's a just as hard, you know, um, what a chat, what a set of challenges to go through and to even, you know, a lot of people don't have an opportunity to get help or don't have an understanding work for, uh, you know, an understanding leadership in the organization. They may not even know mm -hmm. something's wrong, you know, until something's really wrong. It's just incredible to me that you went through 
all those years of talking to all of those professionals and not one of them was able to say, uh, maybe, maybe it's the trauma of what happened in your life. Um, well, you, you know, it's not so uncommon as a scary thing, Jim is like, and one of the reasons why we started our advocacy work is because the nature of psychiatry right now and the medical industry combine it with big pharma is you think about it. We grow up and, and, and we have strep throat or bronchitis and we take an antibiotic and we get better in a day or two. So we already believe early on that there's this magic formula for I take a pill, I sleep and I get better. So why would we think any differently when we're sick from a mental health perspective um, that any of those things would, would, would be any different? So that's the reason why I was chasing the pill. And so all of these doctors that I was going to see, they train under that same philosophy, which is this is a chemical imbalance. We need to get chemicals into this person's brain to change it. And you don't get those questions from people outside of the psychiatry and psychopharmacology world of what's gone on in life. What are some of the challenges you face? What are the traumas you've been through? And the more you talk to people and the more that I've opened up to people, the more you realize that everyone in this world has faced something, whether it's chronic stress related or whether it's, or whether it's some form of trauma. And by the way, that trauma doesn't have to be something that they themselves lived through. So I'll give you a, a, a real quick example. Uh, some people think of trauma, they think I was the one sitting in the front seat of a car when a major car accident happened and a friend or a family member passed away right in front of my eyes. Certainly that's very traumatic. But it's also traumatic to pick up the phone and hear something like that or to hear it happen to a friend. Um, and, and so I think that there's this misconception that we have to be living in and through the trauma physically for it to affect us. And there's this concept of vicarious trauma, the, the trauma that we're living through in other people that affect us tremendously. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you talk to someone that's struggling and they're, you know, they're having a hard time, you know, part of what, you know, in my opinion, what commiseration is, is that they kind of offload some of that energy into you, you know, and mm -hmm. part of being a good listener and a good friend is accepting that energy and helping to dissipate it, you know, because you definitely feel it. Well, what you're talking about, yeah, like th th there's a term for it, like people who are empaths, right? They, they, they sit with people and they give them space to share. Um, and I think that's part of it. You know, but but even even take a step before you're an empath and, and you're and you're giving people that place to share is like the thing that I learned because it happened to my brother and because it happened to my friends is that even if nothing is said, the events themselves, it's like the way that she described it to me, my, my practitioner was pretend like, you know, like w w I talk about sports a lot, pretend you had a front row seat like at a basketball game. And these events are taking place on the court in front of you. Well, when you're that close to those events, whether something said or not, how could you not be impacted by what you're watching? Think of a first responder going into a burning building. And yes, they save a child, but there's a mother crying because another child was burnt in that building, right? I mean, these are things that we see even, even before we get to the point of the communication that takes place. When we're seeing these things happen, we have these motor neurons in our brain and we're watching it happen and, and we're feeling like, wow, 
that's kind of happening to us at the same time. And when it's to a loved one or someone that we're close with, it impacts us because we then start to think about all the what ifs. What if this affects this person to where they're no longer with us anymore or their life is impaired for the rest of their life? I mean, it's really, really difficult topics to think about. Yeah. And then you're supposed to take all that and just put it away when you walk into a workplace. (laughs) Exactly. And, you know, the 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 fascinating thing about going back to that stat in one and five is we don't know because we don't open up and talk about this often because we live in a society where we're very private and we protect what goes on in our family and i understand the genesis of that going back you know number of generations but to your point you know someone could be dealing with major major uh fights going on at home and breakups and being close to divorce and then it's like you come into work and there's this expectation to be this professional. Totally understand that that's the case, right? But at the same time, when that person isn't working on what they're dealing with and what they're challenged with outside of the office, and they're expected to just keep their head at their computer or in a meeting, talk to others and wake up and do it all again the next day, what are we neglecting? What are we not working on? And the analogy that I make is, these chronically stressful and traumatic situations that we're living through is is the equivalent from a mental from a physical health standpoint of eating a cheeseburger and fries every single day for lunch never doing anything about it and then having plaque build up in our arteries well stress and trauma build up in our system just like plaque does in our arteries but we go to the gym we run we we lift weights we try to eat better because that plaque builds up but when it comes to mental health we say I'll just push it to the back and I won't deal with it right now. I'll focus on work. And I I was one of those who made that big mistake. I'm calling myself public enemy number one here is that I loved what I was doing for work. I I had a situation where sports was my hate, you know, it it was what got me away from some of those things. But unfortunately, because I focused so much on work and loved it so much, I wasn't dealing with these underlying things clearly that were affecting me. Yeah. And as you mentioned, you know, it's, it's something that over time builds up, you know, and if, if HR, you know, in particular, since they're often the stewards of these kinds of programs, mm-hmm. um, if they're not actively doing something about, you know, just communicating to their employees that there's program or having a program or there's people you can talk to if you ever need to, it's just sort of like a time bomb, right? I mean, I, mm-hmm. and the way that presents can be drastically different from person to person, but it's never good, right? Well, and, and and to your point from an HR perspective, I think we're in a really interesting place in 2019 where there's more and more talk in the media and in the public eye about mental health, but people are still trying to crack this nut and figure it out, right? And so one of the interesting things that I hear oftentimes from companies is, well, and, and I'm going like from one end of the spectrum to the other here. You have some companies you say, well, if we bring someone in to talk about mental health, I think we're admitting then that our company has mental health or mental illness problems inside these walls. Uh, how is that going to be perceived by our vendors and by our clients? Um, I don't think there's a company in this world <laughs> that doesn't have mental health complications in their office. It's an impossibility. We live life. That's what happens. Um, so I, I think that's short-sighted, number one. Uh, number two, you look at the numbers from a productivity standpoint in terms of how much productivity is lost in the U.S. alone and then around the world based on 
how many people are coming into work feeling stressed, feeling overworked, feeling to the point where, you know, they're at the end of their rope. I know the DSM-5, they just added burnout at work as, a, as, as a, an official diagnosis. I don't know if I necessarily agree with that. Like, we're all burnt out to some respect. Um but I think it's it's something to take into consideration. So I mentioned, I, I think of it in terms of a spectrum. You've got companies who say, we can't have anyone in. Then you have companies who say, yeah, we'll have someone in. This is great for our employees. And what do they do? They do a two-hour event and they check the box and they say, well, we did this mental health thing. Now it's on to the next, right? And then you've got the companies that I've been fortunate enough to work with who take mental health seriously to the point where, one, they care about the overall health of their employees. That's great, and that's altruism. And then number two, they realize that healthier employers are more productive employees. And so uh, we work on programs throughout the course of an entire year collaboratively so that their employees are feeling the best they can and then are creating the greatest work product that they can because it's something that at the end of the day, if they don't address it, You've got people at computers with their heads kind of falling toward the, towards the keyboard. You've got people going to the bathroom really often just to take breaks, people going out to smoke cigarettes, people going on lo longer lunch breaks. I mean, these are the things that seem like no big deal, but you add them up over all the employees you have. They really do make an impact on your bottom line. Yeah, you know, when you're talking about that, I'm thinking about how, you know, in one in one hand, you know, you're mentioning that everybody has some sort of issue or has, you know, has to address mental health. And I think even if we just sort of set some of that aside and we look at people that have a diagnosed um, mental health issue, mm -hmm. it's not on a, anyone's schedule. You know, you could have someone mm -hmm. that works perfectly fine and feels fine for six months you know, and then some little thing or big thing happens in their life or, out, or at work and it just like a switch, you know, yep. whatever, whatever their hang up is happens and it's, it can be very damaging. It can be very confusing for people around you if there's not a discussion that's been ongoing or, or at least some kind of way to couch, you know, you see, it's hard to explain a little bit, but, you know, I know, what, I know what direction you're going with. I mean, I'll give you one example. Maybe this will help you think about, you know, what the point you were touching on is, I think, take take it an organization where you have employees that go out and fly around to give presentations, whether as a, as a group or, or as an individual. Uh, and this has happened to me many times, where your adrenaline carries you through that two or three day period where you've got the conference or the presentation that you have to give at, at, a, at a prospective client's office, and you seem, quote, fine. And then mental health oftentimes lags behind there. So it's like you, you're going on these fumes that is adrenaline, and then all of a sudden you come home, and it feels like you hit a wall, and like you can't get out of bed. <laughs> so so exactly to your point, you know, it, it, it happens on its own time frame, and it's often that we can't necessarily pick when it's going to happen. We also can't pick when life experiences are going to happen to us. So you might have a big project coming up and then someone's grandmother passes away. Well, you know, unfortunately, death doesn't wait for the, um, you know, the, the, the projects that we have and the deadlines that we have. And so I think the key with all of this, and it goes back to the programming element of working 
and having mental health programming in your office is how do we equip our employees with the tools to best be one proactive about their mental health so that they're ready when, um, you know, shit hits the fan for lack of a better term, because it's ultimately going to happen in life. Um, and, and they're more, uh, understanding of these feelings that start to come on them when things start to feel like they're falling apart to where they can do more and more of the practices that will teach them, uh, so that they can maintain a little bit more of a level playing field, um, and, and, and not get so high or so low to the point where their productivity just kicks a complete nosedive. Let's. Let's talk about some of that programming. You know, there are companies out there that have, like you mentioned, good programming. There's going to be a mm-hmm. lot of mid to small businesses out there that maybe they don't even have an HR person, um, or if they do, it's very small and they're overworked. What advice would you give to them to get started? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I can speak from firsthand experience of um, being one of those organizations that comes in. You know, all of our programs are named after an American Sign Language sign. That's our campaign. It's called Same Here. Uh, Same Here, it essentially means like I've been through challenges. You've been through challenges. If we all go through challenges, why aren't we talking about them? It's it's a way to normalize the conversation. And so uh, it's a long way of explaining that when we partner with organizations and, and it doesn't have to be ours, obviously, it could be any that's out there is finding an organization, whether you have an HR department or not, but finding one of these organizations that can help you set the culture in your office around this concept that we all go through things, right? If we have more and more of these topics of we're going to bring someone in to talk and they're going to talk about mental health, the common misconception in the office Going into the meeting, depending on what the person is going to be talking about in the meeting, is that, oh, we're going to be sitting through an entire lesson on what depression is and what anxiety is and what mental illness is. That's the quickest way to lose employees and to lose their interest. The most important way to gain the interest of employees is to talk about these life experiences that we all go through and you start to see heads nod in the room and you start to see people feel comfortable and opening up. I think... One of the most important pieces then in terms of that programming is making sure that who's ever leading it is an advocate who's had a lived experience because having that lived experience is so important in creating a space in that room that's a safe space, meaning that you have someone willing to be vulnerable at the front of the room and talk about what they've gone through. Because I can tell you just the microcosm of sharing my story online and how many people reacted to me and never met me before. When you share your vulnerabilities, what happens is people start to share back. Hmm. And so it, it's, it, it starts with that table setting type of culture changing initiative where you're permission giving to the people in your office to understand that. This is a topic for all of us. This is not a topic for just those people, just with a diagnosis, just who need to leave the office for this all-important psychiatrist, you know, uh, appointment that they have once a week. It goes way beyond that. Let's talk a little bit about stigma because you know you're talking about being having it being a safe place, and that's obviously very important in order for people to feel comfortable sharing. And then earlier you mentioned how some 
some companies are reticent to start a program because they don't want to have the appearance of having mental health be an issue at their business, which is pretty ridiculous. But um, <laughs> that aside, you know, there is, of course, a huge stigma and mm -hmm. I, you know, mostly because of a lack of understanding um, where somehow just having someone have a diagnosis or, or knowing that someone might have a diagnosis makes it some other thing, you know, the, the, uh, the feared other that, and, and something that's to be misunderstood or, or feared, you know, mm -hmm. and meanwhile, of course, there isn't a single person who doesn't have someone in their life that hasn't, has, you know, has to deal with real problems mm -hmm. or, um, so it's, how do you, how do you help couch people so that they can realize that this stigma is, uh, it's really a roadblock and it's nothing valuable at all. Yeah. So, so with respect to the stigma, you know, some of the things that I'll talk about when I come into a room is, you know, it, it, it touches a little bit on some of my own experiences that I was describing to you that, that integrative psychologists helped me, um, understand. I'll ask a broad question and I'll ask something like, how many of you within the last week have been dealing with a very challenging situation that you feel like has been affecting your performance at work? And you get some people raising their hands a little bit, you know, some people kind of halfway up. Okay, that's fine. Obviously depends on the size of the room. Then you ask, okay, how many of you within the last three months have lost uh, a loved one, uh, unfortunately, to a passing, right? And then you start to get some more people raise their hand. How many of you have dealt with uh, divorce in your family? Um, you get more and more people have raised, raised their hand. How many of you have ever been let go from a previous position? You know, I know that's sometimes a sensitive topic, but I'll, I'll ask it in meetings and you get a lot of times people are open and, and they, they answer that question. Um, and so I go through this list, right? And the end of the day, I get a room where the hands are up in, in, in unanimously in the room. And that's evidence of the fact that we're all facing something, right? And so it's, it, it, you can, you can speak in terminology and use stats and talk about how many people are affected. The proof is in the pudding when you talk about real life situations. And so I usually don't ask those types of questions until I've shared my story first, because going back to that safe space thing, um, it's a lot harder for people to share with, with, with the room and with me until I've, I've been willing to be vulnerable myself. I'll often travel around also with, we have an alliance of athletes and, and retainers and musicians, and I'll usually bring one of them with me to each one of these sessions. And so you see the room light up because they see this person who has the quote unquote perfect life or so they perceive. And then that person's talking about really something as simple as what they deal with in life as well. So I'll give you an example. I got off the phone yesterday with Brian Scalabrini, who's, uh, the, his name, his name was the white Mamba when he played in the NBA. Um, and, uh, it was like, you know, a six man off the bench, you know, really popular guy, won a, won a championship with the Celtics. And, and when we were talking and I was telling him my story, he's like, Eric, you know, my story is not as complex as yours. Um, what, uh, what the, um, you know, what, what could I talk about that could ever capture people the way that you do? And I said, Brian, 
I said, people look at you and they see that you're a broadcaster for the Celtics now and that you play in the big three, which is this you know, league for, for professionals after you're done with the NBA. And you've got this family and, and, and wife and kids that are beautiful and, and everything seems perfect. What's not perfect? And he said, well, you know, ever since I was a little kid, I would wake up after I didn't perform well and I'd be on myself and I would have this down, heavy weighted feeling. And I was like, Brian, do you realize how gold that is for people to hear that? It's like people think that you just skate through life because you were given these God-given talents that are better than anyone else. And, I, you know, we started talking about what are some of the things that you do to get out of that mind space? And he was talking about how from an early age, he knew he had to get himself up out of bed and start moving. And that physical activity was the only way he was going to be able to move those feelings out of his head. And so when you bring an advocate to talk about their own personal experience, and then you bring someone of influence who seems to have it all, and then they talk about something, and it's not necessarily something that is earth-shattering or catastrophic. We certainly have influencers who do talk about things like that, but I often bring people who just have everyday ho-hum things because it hammers home the point that it doesn't need to be something that was so catastrophic. Here, if you look at Brian's case, essentially what he's saying is, he was born with this perfectionist attitude. And while that made him the player that he was and got him to the NBA and helped him win a championship ring, it also is one of the things that takes him down because he's so hard on himself because he's never feels like he's doing things right because he always feels like there's, there's better ways to do things and, and ways that he can improve. And so, you know, you now take that into the office, Jim. It's like People say, I actually was once asked a question on a podcast, if you could imagine this question coming from someone, how do we screen for people who have mental health complications so that we don't risk hiring them? <laughs> and I said, sure, if you don't want your highest performers, your hardest workers, your most you know, in-depth thinkers and analytical thinkers, you could screen for them all you want. You know, it, it, it's <laughs> our, pot, our, our greatest strength is often our greatest weakness. And... Um, in a case like Brian, I think that's indicative of you're going to look around the office and you're going to see those people who are like that. You're going to see the person who can hyper focus. And that's an amazing skill that they have for the productivity of what your company wants to accomplish. The question is, how is that, how is that skill set also negatively affecting them if they're not managing that skill that they have, right? So it's talking about mental health in a very different way that shows the universality of what we all face that then helps an organization to realize, yes, this is a topic for all of us. And that's what helps break the stigma down way more than anything like talking about stigma or talking about stats. That's a great answer. I really like the, I, the idea of having a whole room of people with their hands raised, you know, um, that must be very powerful. It is. And, and it's humbling also, you know, it's, it's because, you come into a room and, and these people don't know you from Adam. And then you realize the second, and again, I didn't, you know, I, I'm still like a baby in this space, relatively speaking, two years into it. Um, but, you know, I, I've worked in sports for 15 years. I didn't, I'd never talked about, you know, mental health in the workplace. And then I shared my story on LinkedIn because it was the only social media source that I had. And to have all of these people from all, literally in a week, 400 calls, because I had my personal telephone number and, my, and it was from as far as China. And I'm keeping them in a spreadsheet and I'm calling these people back. And one after the other, the common thread to all these calls was that they were sharing with me these challenges that they'd faced. They had 
a child who they lost to SIDS. They had their dream job when they were 22 right out of college, and a friend convinced them to take a startup position um, outside of that dream job that they had because it would more financial upside and equity stake, and they did it. And they're making a lot of money and they're technically happy, but they're not as happy as they were when they were in that dream job. Think about how often that happens. It's so common. And and we dismiss that as, oh, you know, that's just, that's life. Deal with life. No, it's not. <laughs> that Those are things that build up in us. They, they're they chronically stressful again. And, and when, when, when that stress continues to build and we do nothing about it to what we call release and rewire that stress and trauma from our system, it's corrosive inside of our bodies. It's, you know, you're reminding me of, I mean, there's this insulation is I guess how I'd put it that happens where, you know, in a, in an environment where this, these things aren't talked about. Um, I think a couple things happen. I think one, a lot of people want to, don't want to admit that anything could possibly have happened to themselves. Mm -hmm. you know, and then they don't want to say, they don't want to color their coworkers with, with thoughts of that either, yep. you know, so they build walls between themselves and the people that are around them. And, you know, it's something that I've experienced myself where, you know, I see someone struggling, you know, maybe it's not, you know, they maybe they're not crying or something, but you know, you can just tell something's wrong. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but there's like a little wall inside of you that says, don't, you don't want to make trouble. You don't want to bother, you know, make a whole big thing. Maybe it's nothing. You know, and it's taken me a long time to learn how to overcome that because it's a stupid thing It's that gets in the way of helping somebody. Sure. You know, like what's the worst that happens? You go up to somebody and say, hey, are you OK? Yep. You know, commiserate with them about something um, or, you know, if they don't want to talk about it, that's fine, too. It's just the worst that ever happens is they're like, I'm fine. And then that's the end. Of, that's the end of that. Right. No one's ever like, oh, my God, I can't believe you're accusing me of having <laughs> mental illness. Yeah. <laughs> Well, uh, you know, I'm sure you've experienced experienced that. It is. You know, one of the slides that I use when I do my presentations is, is I ask everyone, what what is the most common conversation that happens around the world in every single language on an everyday basis? You know, and people throw out ideas. And I say the most common conversation is two brick walls talking to each other because it goes like this. How are you doing? Good. And you? Good. Right. How we have that. When we go into work every day, we have that when we're on the subway every day, we have that when we are getting um, fast food at the restaurant from the server, we have that even when we're going to a reunion where we haven't seen some for a while, we're just not in the mood to talk to them. How are you? How you been? Good. You? Yeah, I'm good. Okay, cool. And then you walk the other way, right? The, we don't have this comfort level of removing one brick from that wall and just say, I'm good. Things could be better. Like something like that, right? Think of how that opens up the opportunity for someone like you, and you just phrase it really well, just to ask, how are you doing? Is there anything I can help with, right? And I think part of when you see someone like that and you notice someone who's in a despair situation or just someone who's not acting the way that you might have seen them act uh, over the last week or so is to say, hey, listen, you know, I'm here for you, whatever you need. I just want you to know that I'm here for you. That's what people want to hear. And they might say to you, Jim, you know what, right now I'm fine and that's okay. But just knowing that you're there for them is, is so important. The other piece of that, that I'll say to motivate people to do that is one, let's look at the statistics of suicides in our country. And then let's look at 
the stories behind some of the suicides that we hear. Okay. So we hear about the fact that we have 44, 45,000 people that um, die by suicide uh, every single year in our country. And by the way, that's at a 30 year high right now. It, and it's scary. And so that as scary as that number is, I'm going to throw out a scarier number to you. We have 1.4 million people who attempt suicide every year. Okay. So while we have 44,000 or 45,000 successful suicides, we have over 1.4 million that attempt. If we have over 1.4 million that attempt, think about how many, many more millions we have that are close to the thought of attempting, right? Because it's all works on this spectrum, which means we have tens of millions of people who are affected to the point where suicidal ideations are at least in their mind, okay? If that's the case, and then if after many of the cases where we do lose people, we hear things like, you never would have known, that person never showed signs, that person was a life of the party, shouldn't that motivate us to reach out to people. And like you said, what's the worst that happens? Someone says, no, I'm fine. It's okay. I'm dealing with it. It, 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 it yeah. should, it should be incumbent upon us as human beings and as individuals who are caring people to at least say, Hey, I see you over there. I just want you to know I'm here for you. If you ever need something that, that goes such a long way with people. And I think that's something we need to become more comfortable doing. Yeah. And just to add to that, um, quickly is, uh, nine out of 10 suicide survivors have never tried it again, Mm -hmm. you know, because it's a, it's a often a momentary thing. You know, I mean, the cliche is it's a permanent solution to a temporary problem. And like most cliches, that's very real. Like a, a person is overwhelmed and maybe next week they'd be fine. And it, sometimes that's all it takes is someone just saying, you know, how are you doing? Or I'll talk or let's go grab a drink or, or whatever it is. It, it, it's a feeling of isolation. I mean, I can tell you when I had my ideations, uh, you know, and I, and I knock on wood, I'm knocking on wood right now. I haven't had them since, but, um, you know, and, and maybe it was based on those treatments of TMS that I was getting. And so that's what threw me into that way of, of thinking. But I, I felt like they were error messages going on in my brain. And to your point, if it, 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 it was an impulse thing and I was fortunate enough that I knew that those were not the right messages that my mind should be thinking at the time. And so I had the wherewithal to ask for help and to ask someone to bring me to the hospital because I didn't trust myself at that time. But, you know, not everyone's as fortunate, number one, to be around people when it happens. And number two, it, it, you're right. It, you could feel that way and, and your brain tricks you into this hopeless cavernous place where you feel like there's no way out. And if you have someone reach out to you and say, I'm here for you, that could be just what the doctor ordered. No, no pun intended in terms of what's going to help you at least fight through that moment and get through those feelings that you're having. So that a week from now you're back to living your life and maybe you're not 100% perfect because that's not how it works, but you're not having the ideations to the strength that you had before. It's why compassion goes such a long way. That's why being there for each other goes such a long way. Uh, I think I just have, yeah, it's a great point. Um, I think I have one last question, which is, you know, we talked a little bit about what can HR do and 
What about what can individuals do that are experiencing mental health challenges in an environment that isn't conducive to seeking help? So you're talking about obviously in an office environment specifically, right? Yeah. Okay. So the first thing is uh, what I would say, whether the uh, office is um, accepting of uh, these types of situations or not, um, your life is more important than your job is. And I know a lot of people don't love to hear that. Um, I didn't love to hear that when I was going through it. Uh, your life is, your, your work is often your identity. Uh, but let's be honest, you're not going to have an identity if you don't have a life. Um, and, and I know I'm speaking in very black and white terms right now, but I'm doing that for a reason. Because mm. if you're starting to feel a major panic attack coming on, you're starting to feel major suicidal ideations coming on, there is zero shame in reaching over to someone at another desk or going into your office, the office of, of your boss or a coworker and saying, I'm experiencing this right now. I need help right now. Okay. And maybe the first person that you speak to isn't helpful, but just like it would be on the street, if you're reaching out to help for people, look at people in the eyes, tell them you're in need of help right now and get the help that's needed in that moment. That's kind of my, you know, uh, elevator pitch to anyone who's going through something is your life is more important than your job is. Now, to the people who are dealing with something and they feel like it's something that they can, quote, get over right now, and, you know, they just have to kind of grin and bear through it for a little while, there's many practices that we teach. If you go on our website, um, it, there's two different places to get there. It's weareallalittlecrazy.org and then samehearemovement.org. Uh, there's a there's a section called STAR practices, S-T-A-R-R, -R, and it stands for stress and trauma, active release and rewiring. And so we teach things like alternate nostril breathing or victory breath. And these are things that when you're in a, a moment of extreme anxiety, um, in a moment that feels almost catastrophic, there's ways to calm down the central nervous system to bring this overall calm and normalization to your system so that you're not going to feel that on edge feeling for that much longer. And so I, I, I certainly promote everyone going and taking a look at some of those resources. Obviously, if there's any interest in, in having us out and, and, and doing programs, you know, these are the types of things that I love doing just because I love helping people and our organization loves doing. But I would say that there's things that you can do literally sitting at your desk where no one would even notice what you're doing, but it's certain rhythmic breathing patterns that help you to get to the point where those feelings start to wane and go away. Yeah, that's great. That's great advice. I'll make sure to include a link in the description. Oh, um, great. It's really important that people have resources they need. And uh, odds are that a lot of the people that are listening will be able to make use of that. So, um, yeah, I'll definitely make sure to put that put that in the description. Eric, this has been um, a great talk. I really appreciate you taking the time to join us. Absolutely, man. Thank you so much for having me. It's a interesting topic. Obviously, mental health is, you know, all encompassing when we think about our society, but especially in the workplaces where I think we have a really long way to go. So I applaud you for taking a step in, in pioneering and 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 really diving into the topic deeply as it pertains to the office environment. Yeah, it's my pleasure. You know, I mean, I tell my friends all the time, it's, you spend the best parts of the 
best time of your life at work, yep. you know? Yep. Um, so, you know, to, to, to think that you can't address some of, some of your problems during that time is, is just really unhealthy. Um, listeners, we're always interested in suggestions you might have for what we should cover next. Uh, feel free to reach out to us on Twitter at HRWorksPodcast. Any thoughts or concerns you have, um, or uh, if you have any thoughts in, in general. Um, thank you for listening. This is Jim Davis with HR Works.